Hello. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to Engage. How um, can we engage? I can't remember what the official title of this is, but it's about environmentalism. <laughs> and um, it's great to have an expert in our midst. Our sister Amy is here. She's a professor of geography at Girton College. Is that true? Yeah, that's all true. Great. Okay. <laughs> but also, like a world-leading volcanologist, which is fascinating. So um, I don't know how much space there is today for chatting about volcanoes, but... Maybe you can, uh, you can ask Amy about that afterwards. Um, thanks, everyone. Uh, yeah, so Engage, the purpose of this is for us to get a bit of a starter for 10 on what it is to engage with environmentalism. Um, it's in the media pretty much every day. Um, we live in God's creation, so it's literally relevant to all of us. Um, and Amy's going to help us think through a bit of the biblical and scientific principles um, for engaging with environmentalism. So grateful to have you, Amy. Thank you so much for being willing to share your expertise with us. Um, we're going to have about 40, 45 minutes um, of uh, interesting uh, content led by Amy, and we'll, then we'll have some time for discussion and Q&A afterwards. Um, so get thinking of some questions. Um, yeah, shall I pray for us? And then I'll hand over to you, Amy. Lord God, we thank you for your creation. We thank you that we live in your world, and it belongs to you. We thank you that we see your fingerprints of your goodness and your faithfulness over so many places of it. And we just long to be better stewards of it, to um, love you in the way that we interact with the world around us, um, in, yeah, in the cultural conversation about environmentalism and in our day-to-day -day life too. So we pray, Lord, that you'd be with us this morning. Please uh, lead us, um, help our minds and hearts and imaginations to um, draw close to you in this topic. And please be with Amy and uh, grow us more like you in this next hour or so. We lift up this session to you, Lord, and ask that you'd use it for your glory. Amen. Thank you very much, Angeline. Can everybody hear me all right? It's working, isn't it? Good. <laughs> okay, so um, I'm, I've put together a little presentation um, and... The next slide will show you sort of the rough structure of where we're going to go this morning. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about some biblical principles uh, to start with, to give us some context. Um, and yeah, if we could have the next slide, that'd be great. Thank you. I don't know if you can see that very well. It's quite small, but um, I'm going to go through four kind of sets of principles uh, from the Bible. And this largely is cannibalized from a Cambridge paper that I wrote a couple of years ago on this topic. Um, and then I'm going to go through some of the um, science as it stands right now. So thinking a little bit about what the IPCC says, some of the things that we've learned in the last year, um, particularly from the, the area that I work in, which is disaster studies, um, and essentially show the links between environmental change and um, human pain and suffering, uh, which is, is one of the kind of biggest impacts that climate change and other forms of environmental change is already happening in large parts of the world, particularly the poorest parts of the world. Um, and I will talk a little bit about environmental justice and some of the implications. Um, and if I was giving this talk in my department, I would give a trigger warning for climate anxiety. And I am going to talk about climate anxiety, how we deal with it as Christians, how we think about some of the ways that society is um, struggling with the situation. Um, that we have at the moment and that is developing and getting worse and then how we, as Christians we respond to that when we have a hope in a new creation and we also have commandments related to this creation and how we use it and think about it and relate to it. Okay, so to start with, I'm going to try and I don't know how many of you have ever used Mentimeter before. Anybody ever come across a Mentimeter? Excellent. So you will need a phone um, if you have a phone, telephone, one of those so, if you go to menti.com, M-E-N-T-I dot com, and then type in the little code, which really helpfully they put in tiny type at the top, so I'll read it out, um, 52284866. And then just type in a phrase or a word, the first thing that comes into your head when you hear the phrase climate change. And hopefully it'll work. <laughs> Something's... Yeah. 
Don't all just type the word that everybody else has typed. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, excellent. Great. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Interesting. Controversy and unarguable. That's a good place for us to start, I think. Fatalism. Interesting. Action. It's good. Interesting. Anxiety as well. Yeah. Young people. Skepticism. Great. So there's a, obviously a range of views in the room already. I, you can tell from the word that people have, are in slightly different positions on this, um, potentially. Um, and some emotions up there as well, anxiety, concern, um, and worry. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you. That's really interesting. Can we go back to the slides on the PowerPoint? And we'll come back to that in a minute. Um, okay, so I'm going to talk through some, some biblical principles to start with. So the first one of those is essentially the, the creator-created distinction. So can, can I have the next PowerPoint slide? Sorry. Yeah. So we often talk, in, in geography, there's a lot of discussion around the nature-culture divide and the, the, the problems with the nature-culture divide. The nature-culture divide isn't so much a thing in the Bible as the creator-created divide. Um, God is the creator. We are part of the created. We are a special part of the created. We have a particular relationship with God. We are made in his image, and we have a particular responsibility to him to look after the rest of the creation, but we are part of the creation. Um, the created order is something that God brought about, um, and it speaks to him and it worships him. The rest of creation is part of worship as well as, um, as, as human worship. So hum, humans and creation are sort of part and parcel of ultimately the same category in Scripture, and there's lots and lots of, of verses in the Psalms particularly um, that bring together the sort of way that humans are behaving and the way that God, uh, the way that, that, that creation is responding. Um, and this is obviously one of the, the most famous of those. Um, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Um, and talking about this sort of anthropomorphizing almost of nature, but also the way that nature is, is a part of, of the created order alongside humans and speaks with humans in worship to God. Um, and humans then, it, the scriptures go on to talk about the responsibility that we have to creation. So next slide, um, I think. Obviously the sort of most famous one, this is the beginning of, of, of Gen or the end of Genesis 1, um, the beginning of Genesis. Um, and and it's, it explains to us that we have a particular responsibility because we're made in the image of God we have a particular responsibility to act as God in the sense of caring for creation. Um, and the model of, um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of discussion and debate because of the translation of dominion in the older versions of the Bible, that humans should have dominion. And that gets used as a reason for exploiting and butchering creation in certain quarters. That is not consistent either with what the text says or with the kind of broader meaning um, in that it, it talks about humans as, as the kings of creation, as the sort of pinnacle or the, the sort of rulers of creation. But within the Bible, the, the model of kingship, of good kingship, is a sacrificial model. It's not a model of exploitation. It's not a model of, of destruction or anything like that. It is a model of caring and wanting the thing that you are king over to flourish um, and to meet its potential. And so 
The Bible can't be used as a justification for sort of slash and burn or anything like that, or over-exploitation. The Bible has a lot of principles within it um, around sustainability uh, when we are using and working in the land. And um, there's a, a number of resources on that. Bob White and somebody whose name I forget co-edited a book on sustainability in the Bible um, out of the Faraday Institute some years ago. Um, there's a lot of, of, of passages, particularly in the Old Testament, about farming and things like that in a sustainable way. There are principles that you leave the land for, for, for a time to recover, all of these kinds of principles um, that we can take forward in the way that we relate to the earth in the present day. We have to relate to the earth in a constructive way and in a way that nurtures it and not, unfortunately, in the way that we are relating to it um, at the moment. And so the principle of stewardship is really, really important one. I think, in, in thinking through the implications of environmental change and particularly the causes and the, um, and the impacts of environmental change. Can I have the next slide? Sorry. The other big issue that I want to talk about is justice. Um, and the Bible gives us a clear responsibility to look after each other um, and those in power to look after those who are not in power uh, in society. So looking after the poor, the disempowered, um, loving our neighbours. Um, we also have a responsibility within the scriptures to use the knowledge that we have wisely. And this is a quotation from Ezekiel that I've used here. That if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people and the sword comes and takes someone's life, that person's life will be taken because of their sin, but I will hold the watchman accountable for their blood. And I think that's quite an important principle as well in how we deal with risk more generally. Um, but also in how we think about the, use, the ways that we use the kinds of knowledge that we're getting from science, because ultimately science and scientific knowledge, um, along with other kinds of knowledge, are a gift from God, a way of understanding the world better um, and understanding his creation. There was a great motivation for the Enlightenment period where the, the, the birth of modern science that came out about really through the, the rediscovery of the scriptures in, in uh, the vernacular um, and that, that led to this kind of desire to know the world. And so um, we have a responsibility to use that knowledge and not to just ignore it completely. And then the final slide on b biblical principles is, is around what we should expect for creation um, and how God relates to his creation. So God cares deeply for his creation. There are lots of scriptures I could have used uh, to talk about that. But the earth is the Lord's and everything in it seems like a pretty good place to start. Um, but it, the, the scriptures talk a lot about how you know, God cares for every bird that falls to the ground, all of these kinds of things. He may care for humans in a special and different way, but he cares for his creation. Um, and I'm going to pick on Dirk, who's not here, which is great. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that was interesting when Dirk spoke to us, was it last week or the week before, um, was that he talked about animal rights in a way that was sort of being concerned about sacrifice, um, biblical sacrifices. But the, way, the flip side of that is that animals were viewed as important enough that they could carry the sin, at least temporarily. So animals are important to God. It wouldn't have been a sacrifice if the animals hadn't had a great deal of worth themselves. Um, and I think it's important that we remember that God loves all of creation and not just humans, even though he loves us in a particular way. The Bible also says that creation will suffer because of sin, so it talks about the creation, it, humans and all of creation, so creation includes humans, um, will suffer, uh, will be subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of one who subjected it in hope that the creation will be liberated. Um, and so we know that we can expect bad things to happen in creation, um, and we look forward to it being renewed. But we have to hold that kind of thing in tension with all of the other commands to look after creation, to care for creation, to use it sustainably, in much the same way that we hold the kind of looking forward to a future hope in tension with all the other things that we're called to do in this life. I remember, I think Dennis gave a sermon about 20 years ago. I know this because I still manage the sermons database for the audio recordings. <laughs> and so uh, I know about sermons going back like 30 years. Um, but he gave a sermon on whether Christians are too heavenly minded to be of earthly use. 
um, which I think is a great title and a great challenge. Um, and so I think one of the things that we are sometimes in danger of, particularly perhaps with environment issues, is just writing off creation because we have a hope of a new creation when we wouldn't necessarily do the same for human suffering or, ev- or particularly for evangelism and all of these things, which are actually all part of the same thing, especially when our culture is so, an- so anxious, so upset about creation. We can't go out there and say to everybody, yeah, don't worry about that because it's all going to be made new because that's not what we're called to do. Um, and I was thinking like this last night in relation to Jesus and the blind man for some reason, and I th- well, Jesus could have said to the blind man, yeah, I have the power and the knowledge to make you see again, but you'll be able to see when we get to heaven, as long as you just follow me. So that's fine, right? But that wouldn't, <laughs> he wouldn't have wanted to follow, because he knew that Jesus had the power or the knowledge or the capacity to do something and just didn't care enough to do it. So I think we have to think through some of these tensions a little bit. Um, and, and the thing that we can offer our culture is that hope of the renewal. But we have to capture people's hearts before we can necessarily bring that to them. Um, you have to know Jesus before you can necessarily understand and accept all of the things that he says. Um, so, ne- so can we go to the next um, menti thing first, and then I'll talk some science. So this should, if you've stayed on the web page, it should just move to the next slide. Can you move to the next? Yeah, there we go. So this is just a little bit of a... Uh, entertainment really (laughs) there's a ranking and you rank how important all of these things are to you and I'm just this is partly just to see a little bit about what we all think Disagreement about recycling. <laughs> Wide range of opinions on green transport. Fair enough. Yep. Generally keen on healthcare and social justice, so that's good. Um, healthcare, especially, perhaps. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So the social things are more important, or the things that are more ostensibly social slash part of the social, doing rather better than the environmental things. Interesting. Cool. Thank you. Can we go back to the IPCC and all of that now? Thank you. Um, Okay, so the IPCC, or the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, is a a scientific organisation that was set up in the late 80s Um, to do periodic assessments of the state of the climate system. Um, The IPCC does a survey. So it doesn't do science itself particularly. It does a survey of the literature. It's a synthesis of literature about climate change to estimate or to to assess the state of the system. Um, And it has three working groups. So I'm going to talk mainly about the outputs of working group one, which is the physical science basis. But there are two other working groups that are equally important. One is the loss and damage vulnerability working group, working group two, and the third one is the mitigation working group. Um, And the IPCC has evolved over the years. It's been massively critiqued by lots of people, and and it has adapted. Um, So it's been criticised for not having enough authors from the Global South, for example. It has started trying to include more authors from the Global South. Um, it tries to estimate how confident it is in the knowledge that it produces. So rather than just saying, well, there's a paper that says that, so we're going to treat that as, as, as true, it estimates how good it thinks the evidence for each statement that it makes is. Uh, it gives it a confidence level, how much evidence there is and how, much go- how good that evidence is. Um, and then in particular, it is looking at the confidence in the human contribution to climate change. We know that the climate system changes. We know that it can, can change on quite short timescales in the, in the geological past. Um, but what we also know is that in the last 150 years, the change has been unprecedented, and it's the nature of the change, the, particularly the emission of carbon, 
um, and you may well be familiar with the hockey stick curve that shows the, the uh, parts per million in the atmosphere of, of carbon um, that is measured at Mauna Loa Volcano in Hawaii, um, except when the volcano is erupting because that disturbs it. <laughs> but it, that is because it's in the middle of the Pacific, a particularly good place, not anywhere near any industry and, and so on. So it's a good place to measure it. Um, and it has just been increasing um, exponentially, particularly over the last 150 years. I have the next slide. Um, the other thing is, though, that although we, we see this increase in the carbon in the atmosphere, we are also aware that it has very, very strongly differential impacts. Um, and carbon is one greenhouse gas. There are multiple greenhouse gases. Methane, for example, is a greenhouse gas. Water vapour is a greenhouse gas as well, which is highly variable in the atmosphere, but is also produced by industry. It doesn't tend to stay in the atmosphere very long. Um, methane is produced by cattle. It is also going to be produced um, and is being produced by melting in the Arctic permafrost um, and by, other, uh, by burning of gas and, and so on and so forth. So there are lots of, of ways that we can produce these gases that cause warming. They absorb the infrared radiation that the Earth emits, and that causes atmospheric warming. doesn't do it equally, um, and the impacts are massively, ma massively greater in the polar regions than they are in the equatorial regions. Um, that is um, unfortunate because it causes the ice to melt. And that, in turn causes sea level rise, it can disrupt ocean currents, and we can talk about that in the questions if anybody wants to, um, and, and that then causes problems with um, flooding, coastal flooding and, and um, storm surge and things like that. And we know, um, there, I mean, one thing to say is that we know that human behaviour is causing significant warming in the climate system at the global scale, which is causing and we know this too, really catastrophic impacts at the local scale in certain parts of the world. And um, I, I mean, for even five years ago, I wouldn't have been able to say that there was high confidence that warning is producing more frequent and more intense hazards. There was an SREX report in about 2018 that said, we're pretty sure it is, but we're not 100% sure. The latest IPCC report was pretty unequivocal. Um, that all of these hazards that I've listed here, tropical cyclones, floods, landslides, drought, heat waves, coastal erosion ocean acidification, all of those things are becoming... Well, ocean acidification is related to carbon. Um, the other things are becoming more intense, more frequent as a result of human-induced climate change. Ocean acidification is a slightly separate problem. Ocean acidification is because the, the oceans are kind of one of our best friends as regarding carbon budget in that they absorb a lot of carbon. The problem with that is that, that the absorption of carbon makes the seawater more acidic, and that then kills coral, and it kills all the organisms that depend on the oceans being relatively pH neutral. Um, so there are lots and lots of really complicated interactions within this system, within the Earth system, the atmosphere, the biosphere, the hydrosphere, and so on. Um, next slide. And in 2023, we saw some quite scary figures um, in the climate system and in the related systems as well. Um, the temperature record's been broken. We are now, according, there's a range of estimates as to where we've reached in the sort of, we've been fighting against 1.5 and 2 degrees. You will have heard this in the, the sort of the media they talk about, 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees. We are somewhere between 1.36 and 1.48 degrees now. So we're not going to miss, the, we are going to miss the 1.5 degree target possibly this year. Um, and that has been exacerbated by an El Nino, uh, but the, the interrelation between El Nino and temperature and so on is a long-term one that we can expect, so it's within the measurements. Um, and the, this is um, a quotation uh, from one of the websites, that are, from the Copernicus website, I think, that Six leading international data sets that are used for global temperatures and consolidated by the WMO show that the annual average global temperature was 1.45 plus or minus 0.12 degrees above pre-industrial levels in 2023. And as you can see from the map, the northern polar regions and parts of the southern polar regions were particularly impacted 
by that, um, particularly around the area of the West Antarctic Ice Sheet, which there's a lot of anxiety about at the moment. Can I have the next slide? The ice sheets. So um, the ice sheet area also was at record lows last year. Um, so you can see the, the little blue line on the bottom for the Antarctic ice sheet. That is 2023, the Antarctic ice sheet extent. And that's quite alarming to see that. Um, and again, and the, and the Arctic ice sheet cover also was at record lows. Um, causes problems for organisms that live in the Arctic and the Antarctic, but it also has significant impacts on sea level and so on. Next slide, please. So, sea level rise. These are um, some of the South Pacific islands that are experiencing really rapid sea level rise. Um, so, there's some uh, figure from a paper that shows where the island used to be versus where the island is now. Um, there has been a lot of representation by these nations uh, at the COPs, for example, trying to argue uh, that you know, they need help now and not in 10 years or 15 years' time. Um, so this is um, I, I don't, Prime Minister, possibly, of Tuvalu, um, trying to make the point that he really, they literally are kind of knee-deep in water at the moment. Um, they have semi-permanent flooding on a number of these islands now, uh, it is increasingly difficult to make livelihoods. There are people... There are So Australia, New Zealand, New Zealand particularly, I can't remember, one of them has offered um, a lot of uh, uh, housing and homes and, and sort of refuge, I suppose, to, to people from Tuvalu. Uh, but these small island developing states in the South Pacific, they have almost no political capital. Uh, they form a little group called Oasis um, that... Is uh, that, that, that tries to put pressure on, on the other nations at the COP. They pretty much were ignored at the, at the, the most recent COP, which I'm not going to get onto because it's just a bit upsetting in lots of ways. Um, and they did very little, the people who live on these islands, to contribute to global car carbon. Um, there is a massive inequality between the people who have been responsible either deliberately or just passively for carbon emissions and the people who are suffering the worst impacts of climate change. So it is a big issue of social justice, of environmental justice, um, and of political economy as well. Um, next slide, please. The non-human creation is also suffering. The creation that we are called to look after for God because he loves it and it shows his glory. Um, and that includes ocean acidification, but also the impacts of exploitation, the destruction of ecosystems um, for farming or for mining purposes, for example. Um, and there's uh, also an intergovernmental panel for biodiversity and ecosystem services, IPBES, which was set up in 2012, so it's quite new. Uh, and that is increasingly working with the IPCC, but also does its own regional assessment reports. Um, to look at the ecosystem breakdown problems um, that are caused not just by climate change. And, and the really important message, and the reason I called this environmental crisis rather than climate crisis, is that it's not just about climate, it's about wider use of resources, how resources are used, um, and how, um, uh, how we care for the land and, and for the environmental system much more broadly than just the climate part of it. It's not just about carbon emissions, it's about plastic, it's also about mining. Um, and unfortunately, some of the mining is, is being done in order to mitigate the effects of climate change. Next slide, please. So we had a record-breaking year from a disaster's point of view, which is not something that we particularly look for in the disaster research community. Um, and these are just some of the examples that we saw, from the wildfires to the floods, um, some of them were really very damaging in terms of loss of life. All of them were very damaging in terms of loss of livelihoods and properties and so on. Um, and, it, and they're hugely expensive to, um, to mitigate and to do anything about. Um, there are some countries that are in better positions to mitigate and manage them than other countries, as you might imagine. Um, and again, that's where loss and damage is, is really, really important, and I'll come on to that in a little while, so 
Uh, next slide, please. So these things have very uneven impacts, and these are just some figures that show you some of the countries that are worst impacted by disasters. Um, and Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, uh, Asia tends to, to have some really very significant um, losses from disasters, particularly in terms of lives, um, especially South Asia, so India, Bangladesh. Bangladesh, very low level, um, has a lot of, of problems with sea level rise, particularly, um, and flooding related to sea level rise. At the same time, it's coping with the refugees from the Rohingya crisis, so it's got Cox's Bazaar, all of these refugee camps that are right in the areas that are most prone to flooding, um, and then uh, sub-Saharan Africa, which is very dependent on, on farming and crops um, and really doesn't need extra heat waves or floods or um, just failed harvests. Um, and we, we've known for a very long time that disasters in general, regardless of environmental change, have a very much disproportionate impact on the poor. Um, poor people can't afford to rebuild. They can't afford to... Um, they can't afford to, to have the capacity to evacuate, for example. If your evacuation plan depends on everybody having a car, the people who don't have cars are not going to be able to evacuate. Um, and that's sort of a more developed country example. In a developing country, the people who are living in buildings that are essentially bits of corrugated iron pushed together are not going to have a house after the flood because it's going to be washed away. Um, so... They, and, and particularly informal settlements. So the, the poorest people in cities like Quito, which is one place where I've worked, the poorest people live in informal settlements that are technically illegal and therefore do not have any infrastructure. They don't have electricity, they don't have water, they don't have paved roads, and so they're not going to get out quickly. In the case of Quito, the thing I'm thinking about most is a volcano erupting, but there are plenty of other examples around the world Another place that I've worked is, is Kibera, which is a, um, an informal settlement in Nairobi um, that is prone to flooding, very prone to flooding. Um, and the Nairobi city municipality actually has been working very closely with them to try to put in place plans to try to make Kibera resilient. Um, so there, are, there is a lot of work being done for these things, but there is a huge inequality in the way that disasters are experienced. And a good example of that, that again isn't related to climate, but could be, it would be the same, um, it's just the one I know best, is the uh, magnitude 9 earthquake in Japan in 2011, Tohoku, um, killed an order of magnitude fewer people than the same magnitude earthquake in Indonesia in 2004. Um, and that's because Japan knows how to engineer against earthquakes and can also... Um, and, uh, can stop the trains and all of those kinds of things. It can afford to build buildings that are seismically resilient. Um, this is also the case with things like hurricanes, that you know, Florida is much more resilient to hurricanes even than Puerto Rico, for example, um, which is also sort of an American place, but I have a PhD student who's working on this, so <laughs> there are strong views on, on the situation in Puerto Rico. <laughs> um, but it, there's very differential impacts from disasters that are very strongly related to poverty and inequality and social problems. And again, this is where Christians have a huge role to play, potentially, in advocating for the most marginalised people. Next slide, please. Um, and this is just looking at the US um, in two different years. So 2019, at the bottom, the little map, is the, the kind of billion-dollar disasters, which is how we measure these things in the developed world. Um, one of the things about the developed world is that disasters do cost more because there is more to lose. So in if you look at it in terms of financial losses, it's the developed world that loses more. If you look at it in terms of lives, um, it's the developing world, um, lives and livelihoods. So, um, yeah, in the long-term average of, of billion-dollar disasters are corrected for, for inflation is seven a year. In 2023, it was 28. So, massive increase in the impact of these things in the US as well. The US is prone to lots and lots of hazards because it's a huge country. Next slide. So, all of this is very complicated. We can't view all of these things in isolation. We also can't view it in, in um, distinction, really, from the histories um, that define the developed and developing world. Um, and there's an increasing movement around climate change and colonialism, the impacts that colonialism has had in... Um, 
both producing emissions but also in, in the poor development of countries in the global south. Uh, the ways that those countries have been exploited for resources for a very long time as a result of being colonised in the past, um, and particularly the kind of growth of a form of capitalism that is particularly unequal um, and results in sort of the billionaire class versus very, very poor people. So one of the... Um, so absolute poverty globally has been significantly reduced. Relative po- poverty, on the other hand, is still huge because... Uh, wealth is not well distributed in society. In the physical system, um, there are also lots of other things that intersect with climate change. And this funny-looking colour thing in the top corner is the planetary boundaries framework, which is something that we spend some considerable time critiquing in geography, um, but that identifies different spheres in which we we have sort of what they have set as livable thresholds. The green area is the area we can live in, We're doing okay on atmospheric aerosol loading, mainly because we don't really understand it and can't measure it properly. Um, We're doing well ozone depletion. Ozone depletion is one actual success story in the climate history where the nations of the world have come together, made a decision, and actually something has happened. Um, (coughs) Need that to happen in the other ones, especially the red ones, uh, which are the red ones are the ones where... We're doing really badly, particularly biosphere integrity. The biosphere has been significantly damaged. But then climate change, novel entities, again, the reason it's fuzzy is we still don't really understand it, but that's things like plastic and all of the many, 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 many anthropogenic substances that we're making, new materials that we're making that make our lives a lot easier, but whose environmental and indeed biological impacts, medical impacts, we don't really understand very well. Um, and then there's all of these other ones, biogeochemical flows and... and um, land use, all of these kinds of things. All of those things, we're in red zones. Um, and ocean acidification, we're getting very close. Um, this is quite an old figure as well, so I don't know. It'll be interesting to see how that changes over the next few years and how quickly. Okay, next slide. Um, and I've sort of hinted at this already, that there is a significant difference in the impact of climate change between the global north and the global south, or between rich countries and poor countries. Um, there's a huge justice issue, um, and it's, it's complicated. So the photos along the bottom are from the Atacama Desert, which is one of the places that my current research project is working. And we're working with indigenous communities there who didn't contribute to climate change because they live very, very closed pastoral lives, um, living off the land, mainly growing crops, um, And now they are being um, significantly impacted by the water use of the lithium mines. So they didn't contribute to climate change. We need the lithium because we caused climate change (laughs) and we need electric batteries um, for electric transport and so on and so forth. So now we are mining lithium from places like the Atacama. Um, And the, the photo with the road in it, if you look right to the end of the road, there's these sort of huge areas of, of white that you can see. Those are the big lithium ponds where they're evaporating lithium. Um, and that's, um, that is on land that the indigenous people consider to be their own, but they also know that it is bleeding dry. The quebradas, the little valleys um, that go down from the volcanoes um, where the water comes from um, and bring them the water. They're, they're losing the water. Um, and the lithium, the lithium mining companies are produ- providing reparations in the form of infrastructure and things like that. But that's not really what the indigenous communities want because they want to be able to live with their land in the way that they've always lived with their land. They're not capitalists, so they don't want the same things that capitalism says they should want. Next slide, please. So the implications of all of that are that we're not doing terribly well in terms of stewardship. Um, And I think that's something we really should be reflecting on. Climate change is one example of that. Um, But it's tied into a lot of other examples. Um, It also exacerbates existing inequalities. um, And it is killing people. And it is killing ecosystems. It's killing off Um, what God has made and it's something that we have to reflect on humbly I think and prayerfully and think about how the church perhaps should be leading a little bit more in this than it currently seems to be doing 
Um, so I think the next Mentimeter comes next. This is another word cloud, I believe. So you may not have heard anything new just as yet. <laughs> um, and, but having gone over all of that, all of those impacts, all of those difficult things, how does it make you feel? One word, two words. It's kind of, let's see how it... Because it's very easy to get very despondent about these things very quickly. share the frustrated very much because there are some things we don't have the power to do much about and the people who do have the power are not doing anything um, okay yeah yep too little time interesting We're going to talk about what we can do in a minute. It's okay. okay. Go back to the PowerPoint and have the next one. So I was going to leave a little bit. Have we got time to do a little bit of discussion in pairs? Can we go straight on? Okay. We can have conversation. Yep. So what can we do? In, in the sort of societal broad brush sense, this is the sort of the COP level, but also nation-states. Um, there are two key elements of response to climate change, to environmental change in general, adaptation and mitigation. Adaptation means managing the impacts. So the things that are happening now, what do we do about them? How do we help the people who are suffering? Mitigation is reducing the causes, reducing emissions. The problem with reducing emissions, and I'm not saying it's a problem, but the difficult thing about reducing emissions is that we've gone too far at this point already. It will take time for the climate system to adapt to reduced emissions. We desperately need to reduce emissions, but they're not going to help in the very short term. We need to do it, but it's also, we also need adaptation. Adaptation is really important. Adaptation needs to be done in a just way, and that is one of the key things that gets discussed at the COP. Um, and there was some progress on loss, what, loss and damage, which is essentially the big fund that was... Um, instituted several cops ago uh, and is supposed to be the rich nations helping the poor nations. At COP28, that was sort of renewed um, and the pledges that were made at COP28 to the fund came to 0.2% of what's needed because the Global North is not that keen on helping um, and that is where a lot of the big problems lie. You can't make money very easily out of a lot of types of adaptation. At least you can't make money very easily for people in the global north out of adaptation in the global south. And that means that people don't invest in it so easily. Um, unfortunately, because of the direction that capitalism seems to have gone in. There has been progress. The Santiago Network, again, has been set up to try to help these countries and to identify where the needs are the greatest and all of these kinds of things. Uh, but there's a huge amount more work to do on loss and damage and on trying to redistribute wealth, essentially, and pay reparations, you could put it that way, so that the Global South are um, able to be more resilient to the impacts of environmental change that they are already suffering. There are things that just have to be done now in order to mitigate the damage um, and save people's lives and livelihoods as well. Next slide... What can we do as individual Christians? Um, what we do as individual Christians is important. So we can do what we're able to do. And this varies from person to person. varies depending on your conscience. And it depends also on things like your health. Um, so I drove here today. I have inflammatory arthritis and cycling hurts. And I don't like to do it at weekends. <laughs> I let myself off the pain at weekends. Um, I make these trade-offs in my life to manage the, the problems that I have. And everybody, you know, if you, um, if you need to eat a lot of protein, you need to eat a lot of protein, you probably need it from red meat. Uh, other people don't. I don't eat a lot of red meat because I don't need it. Um, 
there are lots of, of sort of small-scale choices that we can make. Lots of them have trade-offs. I don't have an electric car because I work with the Atacamenos, and um, it would be very hard to work with the Atacamenos and have an electric car because they do ask. Um, I don't know why they think having a petrol car is better, but they really hate the lithium mines. So. Um, so we can do these things, but a lot of the problems are systemic. They are system problems. They are to do with the economic system and injustices within the economic system. Um, and my sense is that people are starting to get a sense of that now and that voting is starting to take that into account. But I do think that, and I know this is controversial within the church, but I do think that Christians have a responsibility to be politically engaged, to understand what is going on, to talk about it, to lobby politicians to think really carefully about how we vote, to give wisely to charities like Tear Fund. I talked to Angeline. <laughs> um, and uh, others that are working with these communities that are suffering. Um, and to be informed so that you can pray. Um, next slide, please. I do think we have to acknowledge that we have these difficulties, these tensions um, within... How we believe, what we believe about the future versus what we're experiencing in the present and how we, we bring those two things together. Um, we do have a hope that the rest of society does not have because we know that God is going to renew creation. He's going to do it again and make it perfect because he has dealt with sin. And climate change, environmental change, in a sense, is, is a huge confirmation of the, the role of sin in society and much more broadly climate change, environmental degradation, all of that is a consequence of sin. It is the creation reflecting the problems of sin. Um, and we are called to try, try to live as Jesus lived. So we have to try to push against these kinds of things within this creation while knowing and declaring that there will be a new creation and God does have a plan. There is a, there is a space for hope within that. Even as we, we feel hopeless some of the time, we have to remember that we do have a bigger hope. Um, the other area where I think we have um, a big role to play is in acknowledging the distress, anxiety, and grief that this causes for people who are not Christians. Um, and for Christians, because it's really hard to see people suffering, whoever you are. And even if you know that they're Christians and they're going to be much better one day, it is still hard to see people suffering, to suffer yourself um, and to see the injustice of it, because we feel injustice very deeply as well. Um, and I think the church also has a huge role to play in pastoral care in this sense, because we have those principles in a way that wider society is very bad at. It tries in schools and universities. We really do try in the university. Um, but we often don't have the framework to do it, whereas Scripture does provide us with a framework to do it and commands us to do it. It commands us to help people, to understand them, to bear each other's burdens um, and, and to live in the light of what Christ has done. And so I think there are plenty of things we can do as individual Christians, both in, in kind of controlling our own thought lives around this and trying to prevent ourselves from being despairing, but think actually we do have a hope that we can take to others and we can do what we can do within our sphere within what is available to us, within the opportunities that we have to talk to other people about environmental change, about um, what needs to happen at a governmental level and, and um, a kind of intergovernmental level um, and lobby for that because the more that that happens, um, the more effective uh, the policy domain will eventually be. It takes time, but it will eventually happen. Next slide. So, yeah, we can pray. And I think there's a lot of things we can pray for. We can pray for the people who are impacted by all of these things, for forgiveness, for injustice, uh, for clarity about how, what we can do and when and how, um, for good leaders, trying not to snigger, sorry. <laughs> it's a possibility, um, even in Anglophone countries, apparently. Um, <laughs> confidence. Um, in the forgiveness that we have, because I think sometimes we do have to pray for confidence in all of this, um, and for a church that acknowledges the sin that underlies it and that seeks to um, 
motivate people to bring them to faith, to give them the hope that they need, but also by our own actions in the world, showing the love that God has for his creation. And I think that's the last thing. So next slide. Is that the last slide? Excellent. So there's another Mentimeter, if you want to put questions into a Mentimeter, or there's time for Great. Thank you so much, Amy. That was just jam-packed with very um, thought-provoking things. Just grateful for you articulating your expertise in a way that even I can understand. So thank you so much for that. Um, it will have probably raised lots of questions. Feel free to put them in the Mentimeter, or we can take them from the floor. I'll come over to you with the microphone. Um, we, it is uh, just gone five to one, so if you need to get going, feel free to, but we'll just do like ten minutes of question time. Um, feel free to stick around for that. Great, we've got a question at the back. There's some thinking time while I walk. Thank you very much for your presentation. Uh, what do you assess is the global response of the church there's a lot of, obviously, uh, well, I don't know how much, but there are trends of, well, depends how you interpret the data, and, well, you know, it's mm-hmm. political, it's not really. Mm-hmm. So how do you assess the church is doing, mm-hmm. how unified or diverse it is in this topic? I think there are really big issues in the church on this. I think you've articulated very well that the church suddenly decides that it's not political, which I, I just... I have a really big problem with because politics is in everything all of the time. You can't escape it, and I don't think the church should be escaping it. I really don't. And I, and I don't think it does. I think it just does it in a very sneaky, stealthy way in some countries, and I don't like that. I think, it's very, I think the church needs to stand up a lot more than it does. The, um, the science on climate change is settled. We know that it's anthropogenic. The data is unequivocal now. There is no further argument on this except by very vested interests who don't understand the science. Um, and you can, I mean, it's just, it's not a thing anymore. The discussion about whether it's anthropogenic is not, is not a question anymore. We know that now. Um, I'm aware that there are, I mean, the fossil fuel companies particularly have worked extremely hard um, to gain influence and have some influence in parts of the church, I think, Um, they have known about anthropogenic climate change for a very long time there are documents that show that and they've been trying to cover it up for a long time there are one of the challenges there's lots of challenges with social media as well and all of these kinds of echo chamber problems that that we talk about in the sort of wider social sciences um, around the way that information these days is very difficult to judge a lot of the time unless it is coming from very authoritative sources. And so people get led into thinking things that are just not true very easily. And, that is, and Christians are as vulnerable to that as anybody else, except that we have the Bible, which we do know. <laughs> but um, so I, I do think there are huge divisions in the church about this, and I think it's really sad because I think we should be doing, leading on it in a way that Wilberforce led on slavery, for example, is always the one I come back to. The church should be leading on this, and it isn't because it's divided and it's been divided by vested interests that are not Christian. That's my view. Sorry if it's a bit strong for some people. <laughs> so I'll go to another one on the floor, and then we'll go to the board. Thank you. Um, Reading a lot in literature around geography about specifically Pacific Island states and how they've used religion and God to better the hopes. So, like Kiribati president said that he didn't believe Kiribati would flood because God will save them because of the covenant with Noah and stuff. How can you interact from a more academic point of view with those Christian views whilst yeah. like acknowledging and respecting people's belief in God to save them, but then also advocating for the church's role in action rather than inaction. Yeah. Sorry, that's a bit convoluted. No, no, that's a very good question, and it's one that I've come across in my own work. Um, and I think there's... Some of it depends on, on where it's coming from. So some of the places I've worked, the scientists have said, oh, yeah, they believed in God, so they didn't evacuate. And you talk to the people, and the people who believed in God actually did evacuate because the church was telling them to evacuate. And the people who stayed were actually staying just because they didn't want to evacuate because they were elderly. Um, But there are other situations where Christians do say things like, God will save me, you know, and it's because... I I think then you you have to correct 
their theology, that that's not what God says. He says, if I warn you about something, then I've warned you about it, you know, and I can use other people to warn you about something. And you should act on the warnings that you have because I've given you knowledge and I've given you science. And, and I do remember being told by the church, I did a load of interviews with church leaders on Montserrat, which suffered a volcanic eruption um, that still means they can't use half of the island. And the church leaders basically said, well, um, what we did was we went into the pulpits and we told people to listen to the scientists because God gave us the scientists to tell us how to manage this eruption. Um, and so sometimes it's about reframing things in a way um, that actually reflects what the Bible says because there are, you know, the, the story of Noah, yes, that's one thing, but there's also plenty of other things in the Bible and catastrophic events in the Bible. Um, and there were catastrophic events throughout the history of Israel that are not in the Bible as well. So, you know, <laughs> it's, not a, it's not something that... We're not, we're not called to be fatalistic in that way. Christianity is not fatalistic, but there can be parts of certain... So some parts of Catholicism sometimes are very fatalistic, which is a problem as well. That's something I've seen in Latin America a little bit. Um, and again, I would challenge it by saying that's not actually biblical. You know, God says flee, you flee. And God can speak through lots of different people. Thanks, Amy. We've got two kind of um, similar interplaying questions mm. on the board. And just for anyone else who's struggling to see those, um, I think they do flow on from one another. So um, thank you for mentioning the ozone success. What do you think we should prioritise in prayer and action? And I think that feels connected to the what should we look for, what criteria should we prioritise when assessing what causes and organisations it's worth supporting. Um, sorry. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think that's very difficult, but I would pray, certainly pray for the COP process because that's the process we have to use. It's a rubbish process, but we have to use it. Um, at the moment, we are, I say we... People I know who are involved in climate kind of activism um, are focusing mainly on COP30, which is in Brazil, because COP29 is in another oil state. Um, And you can, I mean, there are things I could tell you about COP28 that I won't, um, because it was in an oil state and it was just corrupted massively as a result. So, uh, but Brazil, there's a lot of hope for. Pray for Brazil, pray that the right people will go, they will have the right conversations that the governments that are represented there will be able and willing to take action. Um, I, think, I think also praying for um, sort of national-scale opinions to be swayed, um, for voters to be influenced by the green agenda in this country, for Labour not to abandon it um, for the sake of the rich, etc., um, because a lot of this does come down to inequalities. It does come down to rich and poor. Um, and, and it does come down to politics in, in that sense. So I think praying for wise political leaders is really, really important. Um, in terms of what we do, I think giving is important. I think if you can uh, explain things to people, whether that's through peaceful legal forms of activism or letters to politicians or just to the people that you know and that you see, explain to people how your faith fits with the environmental crisis. Talk to people about it. Because I think that also is really important. Um, and one of the challenges is that there are... Uh, like, I mean, I know in geography we, there are often lectures that are quite anti-Christian in tone because the lecturers are not Christians and they don't understand. And that means that they have quite a simplistic view of, of these things sometimes. Um, so challenge those narratives where you can, not necessarily by going up to Liam and telling him he's wrong, because he won't like it. Um, <laughs> I could. <laughs> but I think by talking to your peers and saying, actually, that's not my understanding. I have a different understanding of what the Bible says. So these little tiny... You don't feel like you're making huge differences, but it's incremental. And you might say it to the person who suddenly does find themselves in a position of power or a position to do something. Um, and I think follow your conscience as far as adaptations to your lifestyle are concerned. Do what you can. Um, bear in mind that, you know, it's, yeah, it's not meant to put yourself into a position where you're destitute or not getting the right nutrients. We are supposed to look after ourselves too. 
So um, Matt, you have to, everybody has to come to their own balance of how they deal with those sorts of things. And as I've said, the whole green transport thing is very nuanced and complex in different ways. Thank you so much, Amy. <clears throat> I think we'll draw a line there, just aware that there are more questions. We could probably carry on going for another hour, but we should also have lunch and rest and let Amy have a drink too. So, um, yeah, thanks, everyone. Thank you so much, Amy. Really appreciate your time and just your thoughts. <laughs> I'll just, I'll just say a final prayer for us, and then we can go. Father, we, we do thank you that you know all of the details of what we've been talking about this morning. You know, and you're sovereign, and you care. And we just lift up our, our sorrow and our frustration um, about the ways in which the world's most vulnerable people are suffering the highest cost um, for what's happening to the environment at the moment. We ask that your will would be done, that justice would come, and that we'd know how to play our small parts within that. Um, and for those who have bigger parts, we pray for them. We pray for Amy and her role um, in, the, yeah, in the disaster committee. And we ask for your um, continued help for her, that you'd sustain her, give her joy in her work. Um, and we thank you, Lord, that we do have a hope. We have a hope of you intervening. Uh, we've seen your faithfulness to us um, through generations. And we know that we're heading towards... Um, a new creation that is perfect. Uh, we know what your kingdom looks like, and we ask that you would help us, Lord, um, to be pursuing that in the here and now, in the ways that we can. Please give us courage and love and compassion. And in Jesus' name's sake, amen. Thanks, everyone. Free to go. The next Engage is Sunday the 18th of February, which is not the last Sunday. Um, we're going to be thinking about homelessness, particularly in Cambridge, so mark your diaries. <laughs>